the language of human interaction has become much coarser, much sharper, much less loving and friendly. It's almost as if people don't care enough about each word that comes out of their mouths. Welcome back to the current podcast, Al Regal Achat. Uh, we are very excited this episode to be joined by Dr. Erica Brown to teach us her Torah Al Regal Achat, standing on one leg. Dr. Erica Brown is the Vice Provost for Values and Leadership at Yeshiva University and is the founding director of its Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs Herenstein Center for Values and Leadership. Uh, so without further ado, here is Dr. Erica Brown teaching us the Torah Al Regal Achat. We are delighted to be joined by Dr. Erica Brown. Erica, thank you so much for joining us on uh, this episode of the Quora Podcast. It's always fun to speak to the two of you. And uh, this time we're going to ask you just one question, or at least to start with, which is, can you teach us the Torah while standing on one leg? Uh, no, I can't. Um, others who are maybe better qualified, uh, certainly more qualified than I am to do that. Uh, standing on, on two legs? <laughs> Um, standing, sitting, um, you know, I, I don't think I can do it in, in it quickly, but, uh, cause I think also part of the beauty of Torah and certainly writing on Torah is the slow creative process. It's just putting in the speed bumps so that you look at each word and you look at words in relation to each other and you look at words in a context. Uh, I always say there's the text and there's the pretext, the context, the subtext. And so that's a slow process. You're the first person to, to refuse to answer, which is wonderful. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, if, if we can push you then, I mean, so we can't, we can't learn the whole Torah standing on one leg because the beauty comes out um, or the meaning comes out uh, over the course of a, a, a slow reading um, and learning it carefully. Um, so, I, I mean, could you summarize, I, I mean, let, let's look to your new book, um, which spends... Mm. Uh, on Kohelet, on uh, Ecclesiastes, um, you know, Kohelet spends 12 chapters going through everything, um, you know, every possible way to, to view life and to view a relationship with Hashem and, and whoever else. And then at the end says, you know, soft of iron, like at the, at the end of the day, you've got to listen to Hashem. Um, so mm. looking back so far through your illustrious Torah learning and teaching career, um, if we were to ask you right now, what is the bottom line uh, at the moment, assuming that it might change over the next how many years? So I'm going to ask a question to your question, which is a typical teacher strategy. <laughs> the bottom line to what, Alex? I mean, why are we here? Why learn Torah? If we're going to spend, if, if you're going to tell us that it's worth investing so much time in learning Torah, uh, why? What's it all for? Yeah, so it's interesting you asked. I... I once had a student who was becoming observant and in his trajectory wanted to learn sort of every book that there was to learn. It's almost as if he set himself this goal. If you, let's say, took upon yourself a new hobby and you said, I want to be excellent at this. At a certain point, I realized it was bringing him a lot of anxiety. And I had to address the root cause of that uh, so that he'd continue learning. And I said, you think that if you learn at some point, you'll have mastery and you'll be done. I said, but when you have a tradition that's thousands of years old, there's no possibility that that will be the case. So study isn't objectively to have a body of information and to memorize it the way that one might do so in um, a particular subject, for example, that one would study in university. It's really about... Um, being in the moment of creativity and spirituality and a sense that godliness comes from the act of study. So I don't think that it's instrumental to achieve something else. In fact, sometimes when I have students who are very, very new to Jewish learning, 
um, I'll stand at the board and say, I'm going to stand here and write every single word that you associate with what you should know to be Jewishly literate. So, you know, they'll say Hebrew Bible and maybe they'll say the prophets or they'll say the Talmud and then they'll start talking about Jewish history, Zionism, Yiddish, Ladinos, and we fill the whole board. And then I step back and we all look at it together and I say, is there any possibility that we will master all of this? And they understand that the answer is no. So then it's, can we just be in the journey and the beauty of the learning? And that for many people, because their education has really been about instrumental in many senses, as, as opposed to mind opening, that's a really radical shift of what learning is. I mean, so you brought up the word, you said, you brought up the word godliness. And I think that might be what you were trying to get at. The, the goal of learning, the goal of experiencing Judaism and Torah is not, well, there isn't one, as in the, the goal is, is in the journey, as you say. What does godliness look like to you? Yeah, well, you know, sometimes you'll be learning and you'll say, oh my gosh, like, that's a word I've never seen before. Or I've never had that idea or that idea articulates something that I've been thinking slash feeling slash struggling with. And then there's this new layer of learning. Um, in A.S. Byatt's book, Possession, she talks about the novel. She talks about reading. And she says it sometimes is experience of reading where the words feel hard and clear and it's as if you always knew them, but you're just learning them for the first time. And so I think sometimes, especially when we're talking about Torah study, these are stories, these are laws, these are psukim verses that we've seen so many, so many times. And yet we have a teacher, we read a book, we get an insight, and we think, I will never look at this the same way. And we incorporate it so instantaneously into our understanding because it's so clear to us that it's as if that piece of learning were always with us. And so I think that's a lot of what I strive for in, in my own learning and also in my own writing is to, is to have that level of engagement. And, uh, you know, I'm just in the flow of it. And it's just such a thing of beauty when, when you're there. So you mentioned before the kind of the beauty in the in the journey itself, and I think that's something that um, your students, your readers, will have already experienced in um, some of your other books and the narrow places, kind of the journey through the Ben Amitzar in the three weeks, um, leadership in the wilderness, through Sefer Bamidbar, Seder talk, and I did, you know, an idea for each day of Pesach. So can you tell us a little about in terms of Kohelet? What's the journey through Kohelet? Both the kind of maybe the journey you went through in writing it, and the journey that readers will experience through reading it. Yeah. So I think there's there's the journey of learning and then there's the journey of writing. And they're two separate things. And if it's okay with you, Ari, I want to treat them separately. I think the journey of learning Kohelet is to sort of go in the very, very dark tunnel where Kohelet is. I think you just have to be there. Um, you, at least for me, is trying to see the world as Kohelet saw the world. And so there are features of that study that can become frustrating when you are writing a book because Kohelet is repetitive. There's certain words he uses repeatedly. There's certain ideas that come up again and again. And in the beginning, it would frustrate me because it sounds repetitive as a writer to write about something when I just wrote about something in the previous chapter. But as a human being, we encounter the same kinds of problems all the time in our lives. Either the questions mature with us, and sometimes we get a glimmer of an answer, sometimes we don't. So if you were if you were Kohelet and you were asking a question about Amelut, about laboring, which is a persistent theme, or about money, which comes up several times, different variations about what one's earnings are for and uh, whether one can ever be satisfied, or questions about death. So we ask those questions all of the time in our own lives. We might have asked questions about the role of money or the role of death when we were children, when we were adolescents, when we were in our 20s, certainly someone midlife in their 80s. They're thinking about the same subjects. They're repeating those subjects, but they're just thinking about it differently based on life experience or reading. And so I would say that that was part of the journey was going in the dark tunnel. And then it's almost, it's almost, circling the tunnel, right? That you're going through the same experiences. 
Um, now you could say, as you pointed out, Alex, you get to the end and there's that one redeeming verse, right? Oh, I finally found, you know, I finally found the answer. And then there's that light at the end of the tunnel. But I don't actually think it functions that way. I think in virtually every chapter, there's these little glimmers of what what endures when so much is temporal. Um, as a writer, I would say I have an experience very similar in in pretty much all of my books, and I compare it to doing a puzzle. You know, you get like a 2,000-piece puzzle, and we've got to do a serious COVID-like type puzzle, right? So it's 2,000 pieces. And um, you kind of get excited because you collect all the pieces with the edge, and you know that those you'll figure that out, and that that's a relatively smooth process. And you are in the momentum with the edge pieces. And then when you finish the edge, you go, oh, my gosh, I have to fill this whole thing in. And then it takes a long time to do that. And at certain points, you're going, oh, why are we doing this puzzle? I hate this puzzle so much. And then as you get closer to the end, the momentum builds again because things are starting to come together. And I think for me, being in a book, especially this book, actually, uh, because it's a long book. It has a a long exegetical history and um, and requires a certain kind of treatment, it felt like that. Like the themes, you, know, you write the table of contents and you sort of see chapters and things come out to you. And it's really, really exciting. And then you go, oh my gosh, I have to write, I have to write this now. Um, and then towards the end, as I'm starting to do all the editing, the last process is very intensive for me. It's sort of like sometimes a 12 or 14 hour day because I really, really sit with it and really read it again. And so that process feels like that coming together, the puzzle. And maybe life's like that too. Oh, I'm sure. It, I mean, that, yeah. <laughs> um, your, your metaphor of, of the, you know, the, the very dark tunnel um, of, of Kohelet, um, I'm subconsciously or consciously definitely, insp- I'm sure, inspired the, uh, the subtitle of the book being, uh, you know, a- and the Ecclesiastes Kohelet and the search for meaning. Um, mm. And, it is, you know, even if someone's uh, only experience of Kohala is sitting uh, on Shabbat Cholamoyed on Sukkot, sort of wishing it was finished so that they could get to Kriyat Sarah, so they could get home and, uh, you know, make Kiddush or whatever. Um, but okay, it's, a, it's a long book. It is a long slog. Um, yeah. What are the what are the tools, the flashlight, I guess? What's, what are the, 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 uh, the, the sources of light that you use to try and draw that meaning out uh of because yeah. I, I think you know you, you spoke about it as being like the the final redemptive uh verse my approach has always been and i often refer to myself as as a grumpy british man or a misanthrope on this podcast and mm. i you know I, I do enjoy some things um Ari is looking skeptical but you know my my, my feeling towards kohelet which uh, that misanthropic part of my personality definitely re- relates to it as being, you know, my favorite book of Tanakh, if, if one could have such a thing. Um, but it's always been like, you know, everything is vanity. Everything is, you know, everything is pointless. And it is, and all these things endure, but then ultimately put that to the side because we have the, it, as in it's not so much a redemptive verse related to the others. It's despite all of this, listen to God. That, that's all has always been my, my approach to it. Um, but when you're writing this book and you're doing those 12, 14 hour days to only towards the end of the book, like let alone the hundreds mm. of hours I'm sure you've put in before, if not thousands, what are the, the sources of light? What are those, those tools do you use um, to go into that dark tunnel to try and get towards the end of it and uh, find that ma- the meaning that, that you're searching for? Right. So I know this is going to sound wacky, um, and an oxymoron, but I feel like I'm an optimistic existentialist. Can there be such a thing? I just, I just labeled myself. <laughs> um, I did not find this book depressing. I found it realistic and I find it very refreshing that we have in, in our canon, a book that, that actually sort of confronts some of the dark truths of what human living is all about, uh, that there is drudgery that there is struggle, that there is pain, that there is disappointment, that you can work hard and try to give something to the next generation who may or may not receive it because they may be wise or they may be foolish. So I I find like you, I mean, this is this is definitely a favorite. You know, this is a, a book that speaks to me. It does not speak to me on Sukkot because we read it too quickly. It's like, mm. stop, 
hold up. It's like, can we just focus on one verse uh, and just and just talk about it? Um, so I think we're reading it at such a pace. Imagine reading something by Jean-Paul Sartre and just and just laning it. You know, like you, you need to sort of take time. I actually I have to share with you that this past year I was outside of my community. And I heard someone lane it rather early in the morning. And I'm not sure it's an early morning book, more of a middle of the night sort of book. Uh, I was like, I've been thinking about books in terms of the time of day and also the season of the year. So it's a winter book and it's and it's about midnight Um, and maybe the electricity is off. But um, and a man, the man who was reading it actually belched in the middle of laning. And it was it was it was such a shocking experience. And there was something so comedic about it that I couldn't get myself back. You know, I was I was sort of so deep in the mode um, of 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 hearing the cancellation notes. And then all of a sudden it was it it was the first time, you know, my head popped up and I thought, okay. Well, that slowed him down a little bit. Um, so I, I, I do think it's a book that benefits from from the from the slow reading. I, I want to um, I mean, to answer your question about the the glimmers. So I really favored I, I have a chapter on Hevel and, and what that means. The, the King James's translation of vanity, which, of course, is very pejorative. And we tend to think of it as arrogance. So everything is sort of arrogant. And, and, and you know that that's not what this could mean. Um, Robert Alter translates it as breath. And the thing I love about that translation is the vaporous nature of it. Because breath is something that's absolutely essential and non-voluntary. If we pay attention to it, we can be in the moment of it and it deepens our experience of life. At the same time, the minute we breathe, it evaporates. So the way that I look at Kohelet is maybe even, maybe even if I could have found a better word, I would have used a better word than the search for meaning, but I did want to situate Kohelet as an early sort of existential work and then compare it to many other uh, existential works, whether it was, um, you know, in praise of folly, Erasmus, or all the way up to, you know, Jack Kerouac or, you know, or Tolstoy earlier than that. So I wanted to situate it within a body of literature that deals with questions of meaning but in actuality, if I could put the search for for enduring truth, Kohelet is trying to find out what endures. So he says, "What about money?" Now, you know, I'll be in Bet in chapter two. I'll 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 amass wealth and I'll build vineyards and pools and I'll have singers and and he enjoys it and he says, and that's all I got out of it. So there was nothing enduring about it. And so Hevel is Hakol Hevel is him saying. There's nothing really that's truly enduring. You can make a beautiful stone building in a few hundred years. It will, because of entry, entropy, it'll decompose. So what does have enduring worth? Uh, that's why I think he gets to the end. Mm. But he finds enduring worth in lots of small places, you know, in, in eating and drinking and, uh, you know, and and the friendship perhaps that, that happens at the table um, in the idea that to... And Echad, the idea that there are seasons and and there's hate, but there's also love, right? If you cycle into something bad, you're going to cycle into something good. So that helps you, helps sober you when you're in a good place, but it also helps give you some optimism when you're in a bad place. Um, in terms of, you talked about the that kind of, one of the things you like about Kohela is the kind of the, the it's a it's a realistic book. It's kind of is like a reality check in the context of Tanakh. Um, and you also mentioned, I guess, that you struggle with Kohela on Sukkot, mainly because it's read slow. But let's say you had time to read it. And obviously Sukkot mm-hmm. is man Simchatenu. Um, and, and I know that, and feel free to plug any other ongoing projects, that joy is a, a topic that's close to your heart. And we've talked before about Yom Kippur being like a joyous time. Um, h- how do you find, how do you think Kohela teaches us to find joy in reality yeah i mean i guess i guess if you're gonna if you're gonna translate hevel as uh something that's temporal uh certainly sukkot you're sitting in a dirat arai uh you know a, a building that by halachic standard must be uh, vulnerable in some way you must be exposed in some way in that building 
um, as I've said, and I thought before, you know, you can build the walls out of anything. And when you think about walls, walls are a refuge and a shelter, but they're also a division. And that's a very human way of living in the world is to construct walls around you to protect you from what's outside, to defend um, and to keep in. And then there's the roof, which is very, very expansive, and you're exposed to the elements, and there's some unpredictability and uncertainty in it. And so I think when you think about what Sukkot is, it's that really remarkable amalgamation of happiness and the fruit of one's labor and gratitude to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, to God for, for the abundance of the harvest, and then the realization that that always has to be tempered by the fact that we're not here for long, that we're in a temporary dwelling, and that the sukkah really only holds, it's, it's, it holds a small number of people, maybe maybe the people we care about most. So in that sense, you know, if you look at all the psukim, I think there are seven, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, that men- that punctuate the book about, with happiness, the simcha of, of, of festive meals, you say to yourself, ah, the festive meals, that's not insignificant or incidental. That actually is the primary experience of being in the moment and saying, we don't have long, but let's let's make this moment something very, very special. I don't know if you've read Babette's Feast uh, or Movable Feast. You know, there's some there are a lot of meditations to be made on the role uh, that food and people in unison um that 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 um, transitory pleasure that comes from that experience. When you talk about Hevel now, um, one of the things that comes to mind um, is recently the Israeli singer Hanan Ben-Ari released a song uh, where the, the key line, I mean, it's kind of the chorus, is Hakol Hevel, Chutz Mikadaregel. Um, everything is Hevel. <laughs> However, we understand that apart from football, which is obviously something that resonated with me as an English person. Um, I think it, it was also came out at the time recently. There's been some uh, exciting times with Israeli football in the under 20s, under 21s. Ted Lasso. Uh, exactly. Um, and <laughs> I, I, I don't know if he's maybe expressing this idea that there is it is important to kind of have, uh, you know, more to ourselves something else to ourselves, a passion. Um, and, and Alex asked you about in terms of the cover, and I was just interested to hear it. It was, you know, up until the release of this book, it was kind of this little known secret that uh, you were, you know, you painted, you, you, you were an artist. Uh, no, what, I'm not what, an artist, what, I'm just a hobby painter. A, a, hobby, a hobby artist. <laughs> um, what, how was how that an important part of you? How was that an important part of the process for this book in general? How did you come to it? I'm just interested to hear more about... Uh, Kind of that's that 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 side of it yeah um so actually i want to relate that to Ari to uh to something that emerged for me as a teaching from kohelet and that is what i'm going to call the theology of distraction uh, there are a number of places where kohelet calls something hevel um and where he says let's sit down and have a meal right after he mentions something very grievous about the world, right? That uh, that wicked people are prospering, um, it, it, you know. A, and then it, it's not like you, you'd say to someone, you know, Tzadik Varalo, uh, they're good people and bad things happen to them. And you're sort of very deeply distressed by this lack of justice and then say, oh, look, forget about it. Let's go get a hamburger. So I was very, there's a lot of whiplash in the book and people don't realize it because they see it as one proverb distinct from another, but they're actually cluster groups of ideas. And this idea appears somewhat uh, with some degree of frequency, an observation about something that seems not right with the world and then the desire to sit and eat. And so I was thinking a lot about it, and um, and I was thinking about it within the framework of some of the work that John Gottman has done in studies of marriage and relationships, where you could be in an intense argument, and it might be the same argument that you've had with your spouse or your partner. Again, you know, like I would say on every anniversary, you celebrate how many years you've had the same argument, right? So let's say you have this argument, and um, 
and you know how you know that it's not going to get an easy resolution because sometimes there are irreconcilable differences and it would and Kohelet, I think there, when you live, you understand that everything is not going to neatly um, and, and neatly and consistently be tied up in a bow. So Gottman says, what does it look like to take a pause? Right? In other words, instead of arguing and getting, take a pause and then do something that you generally like to do together because it gives you, it softens everything. It's a distraction. But it, it serves more of a point than a distraction. It's a distraction that actually reminds you what you really enjoy about each other. So if you imagine on a theological level or a philosophical level saying, I'm in this very deep existential space, I don't know how to get myself out of it. What if I did something entirely different? I went bowling with a friend. And so it doesn't mean that there's not injustice in the world. In fact, injustice is right around the corner because there's a homeless person sitting right outside of the bowling alley. But for but for temporary relief, I can actually do something, and there is merit in that doing, and it will actually last me longer than the 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 actual sport or the act of it because I will I will spend some time in that space. So you asked me about painting. I, I actually have been painting for a very long time, but I've never been formally trained. I've done some studio art classes, but I have a, a small studio in my home. And I would say about 10 years old, I was I was painting more seriously. Um, and I, I, I had really thought about doing it as a, as a career. Um, not exactly something that, um, let's say there's parental support for artists, but um, but I uh, I thought a lot about it. And I'll tell you, for me, it's one of the great distractions from suffering. If you take a white canvas and you put one intense color on it, your world is more beautiful. I mean, the, the magic of paint is unbelievable because you you actually now you get frustrated. I get frustrated when I have a vision of something and I can't actualize it, which is true in writing and all the creative arts. But in general, you can change the way something looks very quickly. And what a deep life lesson that is right to say i could take something that's white and plain and neutral and i can put i can saturate it in color and the other thing that's very profound for me as a way of looking at life is it, when you paint the full value of a color which is the lightest to the darkest paintings always look i'm sorry that was my daughter Sorry, let me just, we'll do that again. I, I, you know, I put my phone in airplane mode, so I'm not sure why that went through. I'm so sorry. That's all right. She had to take airplane. it. Um, no, it's my daughter. She, the neonatologist, she calls me all the time. Um, thank you. Sorry about that. Um, so the thing is, in, in art, when you paint a value of a color, it's painting it from the lightest to the darkest. And those are paintings that have the most depth. So we tend to think when something has a lot of depth, it's because it's it's at a darkest point. But when you think about going to a wonderful class or a wonderful movie or a wonderful, uh, you know, piece of theater or or a book, it's because you could say, oh, I left. I cried. It was it had this full range to it. And I think that's what Kohelet really is for me is the full range. And unfortunately, people only see it as like the Leonard Cohen type of darkness. And they don't see the lighter moments and the moments of inspiration, sort of the glimmers of light that really do appear throughout that give it that that real appeal. If it was only dark, you know, uh, Susan Cain just wrote a book, Bittersweet, about why we're drawn to music in minor keys. Right. And, and why people listen to that much more than they listen to, you know, upbeat music. So I, I appreciate I'm not a cuds or regal person. I'm not a I'm not an athlete, as, as will not surprise either of you. Um, but I I do appreciate this sort of, you know, everything might seem bleak, but there are things that actually make things worthwhile. And whatever that whatever the fill in the blank is for you, just do more of it. Uh, because we don't have a lot of time and, you know, the time spent well spent with meaning and delight and laughter and that range is really what makes life full of color. It's really interesting. I, we, this came up 
Ari and I spoke to um, many Evan Yisrael recently, Rav Steinsatz's son, um, and he sort of mentioned something quite similar. Um, and right at the beginning of this series of the podcast, um, we spoke to your colleague, uh, Rabbi Ari Berman, who when we finished recording, mm. he and Ronnie Ziegler were having a conversation about um, the Rav and Rav Lichtenstein and how they like famously disagreed about this idea of, sort of uh, what you call the, like the theology of distraction that the Rav would talk about how like sometimes you need time, you, you need time to digest the meal. So like he would sometimes stop learning Torah in order to just do something else. Whereas Rav Lichtenstein, you know, famously would just sit and learn and learn and learn and learn. Um, and perhaps and your next book and a shorter book this time might be on this idea of sort of that sometimes you have to stop learning. You have to sort of step away from whatever it is, whether it's Torah or just, you know, work and life and whatever, um, to, to fully appreciate, uh, uh, what it is. I, it's just, I, it's really interesting to me that sort of some, something that we haven't really like explored so much, but in the last few months it's come up from, you know, three, uh, wonderful Torah teachers and wonderful, you know, people far, So far Alex, I don't, I don't see it so much as stepping out to step back in. I feel like I never really leave the space of Torah learning because everything sort of funnels into it, you know, and I, I think that's true for a lot of people maybe who haven't really explicated it. But when you have, when you're wearing a certain kind of glass, you know, when you're wearing glasses, um, as all of us do, all three of us do, you're seeing the world through that lens. And so if your glasses are, are the glasses of a Torah teacher, your whole world is really, you know, is informed by it. So you'll, you know, you'll listen to a piece of music and it'll remind you of a pasuk or remind you of a piece of Gemara. And that to me is the hafokba vafokba de kulaba. It's like anywhere you go, you're really always collecting material. Certainly that's true when I'm in a book. Everything I'm seeing through the lens of what chapter does this belong in? Even if it belongs in no chapter, it's just, you know, then I have to, it's this constant filtration process. Um, So for me, doing something that's outside of, let's say, the more cognitive aspect of learning Torah doesn't mean that it's not also informing the Torah. Um, I think the, and, 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 you know, I, I, I cite a lot of different things in the book, whether it's, you know, literature or philosophy or art or poetry in particular, um, because it's 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 all part of that same expansive way that the Torah opens us up. There are people who feel that that's like you mentioned about Rav Lichtenstein, for whom the purity of Torah is is learning it without without every voice sort of sort of speaking although for him of course the uh, literature appears all over his all of his writings um yeah i think it i think some some of it is dispositional some of it is temperamental some of it is the company that you keep no i, I think that's right I, far be it for me to sort of interpret the words of the rav um, and you know, this, this is what, you know, this came to us from, from Rabbi Ziegler, um, who will have to have on the podcast as well to talk about this perhaps in more depth, but that, that, that's what it is. You know, that, that stepping, aw- stepping away from it, wherever it is, is not so much you're stopping and putting it to one side, but more, you know, you're, uh, you're finding it from other sources. I, I, I uh, <clears throat> many spoke about his father talk. I think it was, he said that wherever he traveled around the world, he always wanted to go to the zoo. He had whatever, whatever fascination it was uh, with animals, whatever. But as an, and then you look through his books and his, in the uh, current time above Lee or the Rambam or whatever it is that, that there's always, he's always got, the, whenever the Gemara mentions an animal um, in the current time above Lee, there's always a picture of that animal um, because there's, there's some sort of added value to taking your eyes off the text for a moment to look at the picture. And I think, I, I, I think we're saying the same thing. I don't know. But, um, well, I think there's, there are instrumental ways. And as you might say, I need to know about animals because the elephant appears in this piece of Talmud, right? And so that there's, um, and Norman Lamb talks about this, Rabbi Lamb talks about this in his book, Torah Mada, different ways in which we understand the value of, of general studies. You know, is it uh, that I look in the Torah and then it's the blueprint for the universe? 
Or, you know, if I study math, I'll be able to understand Erevin. So that, you know, I think that there are different ways in which one would approach this. I, I, you know, when I go around the world, I go to art museums. And so on the one hand, I'm always looking for artistic depictions of biblical scenes because they really make me think about the interpretation of those stories, but not exclusively that. I feel that I'm in the painting is another way of being in a page you're just de- it's i'm interested in deeply immersive creative experiences no you know no matter you know whether they're in words or in color and paints so it's it's they're not the same process by any means but they they do a similar thing you know when you have a blank page and you and you type on it it's not it's not dissimilar right to putting paint on a canvas if i could change direction slightly but i think that they, we might be able to connect it uh, to what we've been talking about so far but to me at least this book uh, ecclesiastes is, is a little bit different to to your others um you know whether it be the haggadah or uh, um leadership in the wilderness which is on safer by midbar um or in the narrow places which is for the, the three weeks and even the other two volumes of the uh, Magitaj and Tanakh series that you've authored on uh, on Jonah and on Esther. Um, in that Kohelet, at least on the surface, sort of doesn't really have a narrative so much. Uh, Bamidbar, there, it's, you know, there's a short break from sort of narrative in the Torah and in Vayikra, and then it comes back to narrative in Bamidbar. Uh, in the narrow places in the Haggadah, you sort of, you're going through a period of time, um, you know, from, from one day to the next uh, uh, over eight days or over, over three weeks. Um, and then Esther and Jonah are, are narrative books, whereas Kohelet on the surface is not. Um, and then going back to your Torah, not on one leg, um, but there being mm. that the, the joy, the, the joy or the, the, um, the, the goal is the journey itself. The destination is the journey. Um, so how, how did you find yourself sort of interacting differently? Both, I mean, I suppose in, in the writing process and the editing process, did you find yourself sort of uh, relating to the material differently uh, compared to when you're dealing with sort of obvious narrative or, or you know, a period of, of time and space? And I suppose as well, like, not just on a subjective level in terms of your interaction with the writing, but also perhaps w- what you want us, the reader, um, to get out of the books. Is Was there some sort of methodological difference uh, or even just a you know, intellectual, so just even a, sp- a spiritual difference in sort of your approach to, to this book versus some of your others? Yeah, that's a multi-pronged excellent question. So thank you for asking. Um, it is different when you don't have a defined plot. And also when you have a collection of proverbs, right? So I've done a little bit of writing on uh, Michelet. We'll see where that's going on in proverbs. And, you know, when you're writing when you're looking at a chapter and saying, I'm going to try to write three essays on each peric of Kohelet, right? So that'll be 36 and the introduction, the epilogue. Uh, but I'm going to do that. And and that seemed like a lot to me. You have to pick which proverbs are going to, are going to surface to the top because otherwise you could be writing technically on each, on each pasuk. So what I tried to do is, where a theme was more prominent in one chapter, I would write about it in that chapter, but I would take Sukim from um, on that related theme from the entire book. So you're right. It was very different in that sense. I would say writing a table of contents is more challenging that way is to say, how do I reduce this as it is? I mean, I, I promised myself after Esther, I would never write an, a, a, another long book and, and look, here we go because I couldn't, I couldn't find a way to do it shorter. I, was, I, I could only find a way to make it longer. And I didn't think it should be longer. I, I thought it should be shorter. So part of this is how do you stay faithful to what you think the book is trying, the main themes that the book is trying to communicate. And I thought to myself, I'll cover every Pusuk some way by doing this. And I, and I still didn't. So I didn't, I didn't achieve that goal. Um, I will say the other thing that was very different about writing this is that I wrote, I did most of the research and and most of the writing during COVID. So, you know, if life wasn't depressing enough, you know, it was a, you know, it's just sort of throwing, throwing this, this intellectualization of what was going on because many of the major themes that we dealt with in COVID, like what is work? 
I mean, that's a, that's a question, Kohelet. Mm-hmm. What is Amelut? Is there is is it worthwhile working? Do we work for to 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 make money for someone else to misspend? Uh, you know, do is, 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 is are we satisfied with the work that we do and the money that we earn, or does the more money we make make us less satisfied? So I would say that a lot of the themes, certainly the theme of mortality and and aging, um, when you get to the to the end of the sefer. These were things that were very real to me. They were not. They were not hypothetical, ancient themes. These were happening here and now. And I, I, I think I mentioned uh, um, I was speaking to someone else on a podcast. Uh, my daughter is a neonatology fellow. She takes care of babies. Uh, they're only a few days old who are very sick. And so I was, I was working on Parikvav one day, and it was about the Nephel, right, the stillborn, and. My daughter called me and she said, you know, what are you, what are you working on? So I was discussing this with her and she said, and I said, you know, is it better to be born or not to be born? I brought an Eov and she said, well, that's what one of the mothers said to me today who had lost her child. And so and and so there's times where it was just so heavy that I had to put the book down for the day and say, maybe I'll take a day off. Um, and that doesn't mean that you don't return to it, but but sometimes you have to you have to take a day off. Wow, <laughs> um, the I mean, I, just, I want to follow that follow follow up with, on that question with with asking you, you sort of you said how the, there are themes in the book, but it's also that there's a progression through the book and towards the end. He Kohelet Shlomo Melech deals with the different or starts dealing with questions about death. Um, sort of take taking that um, a little bit, but you know there are definitely themes. You, you can see sort of the different eras, I suppose, of, of Shlomo's uh, writing, um, whether it's comparing Shir Hashirim to Kohelet, you know, one presumably written as a younger man versus one written as an older man, and his outlook on life moving from like incredibly romantic and idealistic and, and whatever in Shir Hashirim to Kohelet, where it's it initially, you know, half an hour ago or so, I thought it was all negative or at least most negative for your saying that it goes up and down um, or even in the book itself where it's quite in Kohelet itself where it's quite binary, but Hakolzman by it, that there's like a time to laugh and a time to cry and a time to, you know, that it's opposites going backwards and forward. Um, as someone who has written vastly um, with several books on, on all different topics, do you see um, a, do you see the, the eras of Erica Brown? Um, you know, what was your outlook uh, on you, you know, your general outlook when you were writing in the narrow places versus when mm-hmm. you were writing Esther or when you were writing uh, Ecclesiastes? Um, you know, c- can you identify sort of the different uh, macro thoughts um, through your writing career? Um, sort of saying, you know, I'm comparing you to, to yeah. King Solomon, and I'm on purpose as a compliment. No. That's a lot. Uh, no one's ever asked me that question. I feel like I need to give you a thoughtful answer to that. Um, I did have a, I did have some moments. I would say a year or two ago, where I sort of I wanted someone to help me understand myself. You know, like why I picked certain books. You know, I'm in the moment of working on them and writing them, and um, I don't always. It's it's not like I have s- some thoughtful progression in my head. Oh, next time I'll write this. I actually heard Dara Horn, the novelist, is uh, an acquaintance, um, talk about one of her books on a book talk many many years ago, and she said she had read. Uh, I think she read the Chosen, Chaim Potok's book. She loved the Chosen, and then she read the next book, and then she read. You know, my name is Asher Lev. She read other books. And there was a very similar sort of plot line, different characters, different time period, but sort of, you know, someone secular in confrontation with some something religious and what the transformation was going to be. And it made her say, I want to write it. A, a different book, every book, which she has been able to do successfully. And so I think for me, I, I mean, I wrote a book on boredom. Uh, I, I, I do get intellectually bored. Um, I, I, I struggle with it. I try to use a creative outlet 
uh, Joseph Brodsky, when he gave the um, the poet Joseph Brodsky, when he gave the commencement address at Dartmouth, I think it was 1989, he he told people to be crushed by their boredom. He just basically said, you know, it's a boring world and be crushed by it because if you get crushed by it, it'll become generative for you. You'll just, you'll have to dig your way out of it, right? Existentially, mentally, emotionally, you have to dig your way out of it. And so for me, this, the, the a study of a new book doesn't work in that sort of progressive way that you've outlined. I think that's, that's kind of a comfortable way to look at it. Uh, Halavai, life should be that linear. Um, for me, I think different books speak to people at different times in their lives. And um, Kohelet really, really spoke to me profoundly during COVID. So I think it was great for me to work on it and to help me understand what it looks like when we're all in this place of uncertainty and to basically let go of control and um, which is, which is not easy for me. And, and to sort of say, let the book speak to you and speak to this time period. Yeah. Yeah. That that's probably the closest that I is, is to try to say what's a new safer that allows me to express myself or think about something very differently than I thought about before. We all have authors and we felt like we've read, one book, and that's been, you know, sort of sets up the formula. But life's not a formula. I, I think my, my question was that. As in it, I'm not sure my question was, you know, how did one book lead to the next? But more, if one were to to look outside of, of the Torah world and outside of the written world, um, but, you know, when you have an artist um, like, you know, uh, again, this I'm going to show my ignorance. Um, if I have never done so before on the podcast, I'm going to, people will see that I am, uh, ill-educated, but you know, you're, if you see sort of uh, Monet's early work where it's much more realistic and it's much more, you know, true to, to whatever he was drawing, and then he he slowly develops into an, an impressionist, whether that was conscious or not. Or you have Picasso who went through, you know, whatever period it was in the blue period and 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 such until he became, you know, the Cubist and the Picasso we're all familiar with. Um, my question was more, you know, not so much did one book lead to the next, but when you, if you were to look back. Uh, at the books you've written, I mean, could are you able to see sort of? Oh, this is what I was thinking about more generally when I was writing this book, and it, it came out through the writing. But I think with this book, it's it's the the art uh, connection is more relevant because, of course, you as well as writing the content, you painted the picture um, that is uh, adorn that is adorning the cover. And as an artist, as well as an author. Are you able to look back and in the same way that Kohelet does, are you able to look back and see, you know, the different periods of your life and how, what you were, what was going on, um, was influencing what you were thinking about? Um, so you're right. This is, this is the first book cover that I have, uh, I have painted. I have to tell you that I painted multiple canvases because I was trying to say, okay, what would Hevel look like? And, um, and so sometimes I wrote out the word Hevel um, cause I thought maybe it would, you needed to sort of be more didactic and, um, and ended up with this sort of Jackson Pollock mess because it felt like the sort of chaotic brain of someone who's really sort of thinking about the universe and everything is sort of being thrown into your, into your mind, to your heart. Um, so, and, and there's a little history of that painting, of this painting too. Um, I actually, uh, I'm saying this for the first time, I actually did take a picture of a painting for my Bamidbar book. Um, but I didn't say that it was me who did it because in case they didn't like it. So I didn't want them to feel that they had to accept it and they had had a, a, another idea in mind. So that, so that didn't work. Um, I'm not, I, I don't really display my art. So it was a, it was a huge jump for me to put my art on the cover. I guess I really felt that this was an artistic work in a lot of ways. So it represents sort of the totality of the totality of of uh, of a creative output, which is uh, very visual um, and cognitive. So that's you know that's sort of where I am. At, you know, as I as I get older, I'm I'm a little bit more afraid of risk taking with the text. Uh, um, I should be less afraid, but I get less confident over time. Can so Kohel is perfect for that because yeah. it just could make anyone feel insecure. 
I mean, can you speak more about that, about being like le- more risk averse? As, yeah, as I think, um, yeah. Or you want to I mean, I don't that? know. Do you, feel, do you feel more risk averse? I mean, I, you know, when you get older and you're going, should I really ski down this mountain? Is that a good idea? You know, I think there's a certain youthful exuberance where you're happy to take risks. I think as I've aged and the world has aged with us, the world has become a much more complex place. And so the, you know, the sense of uncertainty for me is much is much harder to to sort of stomach and, you know, the reality that we have control over so little um, that human relationships are very complicated, uh, that we have certain idealized portraits of the way life is supposed to be and work is supposed to be and family is supposed to be. And then, and then, you know, you confront the reality that life's not like that, that people you love die and get sick. Um, that uh, work doesn't always love you back, that friendships change for good and for bad. I mean, I think I, I think that's that would naturally make it certainly makes me a much more vulnerable person. And taking that, I guess, a little bit further, I mean, looking at, like you say, 2023 is somehow an interesting year. We thought 2022 was, we thought all the time things are changing. <laughs> Um, 2020 is crazy. It'll never be another year like this again. Um, so we're, we're in 2023 now. What, what, what do you think that Kohelet brings to the big conversations and things going on in 2023? I mean, obviously things in Israel where we are, are, are yes. there's a lot going on. Uh, in America where you are, there's always things going on. Um, there's running themes between the two, but what? how do you think Kohelet speaks to kind of what's going on around us today. Yeah. You know, I think, I think Kohelet was a master of language. And one of my fears uh, on both sides of the Atlantic is that the language of human interaction has become much coarser, much sharper, much less loving and friendly. It's almost as if people don't care enough about each word that comes down of their mouths. So I think I think on on that level, Kohelet has a lot to say. Um, maybe just set an example. Uh, could you can you say the kind of things that one day someone th- a thousand years from now, two thousand years from now, three thousand years from now would read in front of a congregation? Do you take words that seriously? Um, so I think that's that's a piece of it. Um, but on the hopeful front, you know, when it says Tova Shnaim and Echad, that two are better than one. So you can think of that in a very utilitarian way, and it's and it's written in that way, right? You know, two people warm the bed, one person can pick up another person who's fallen. Um and I think uh I think friendship was something that I thought a lot about as I was writing this book. And certainly the locus of that is is in those few psukim. During COVID, many of us, many of our relationships changed, you know, that we intensified certain friendships and some people did not have the emotional bandwidth for lots of people who are acquaintances, people who just populated their lives. But but when, you know, you don't have a lot of time and you're alone, those office friends, the, the people that you see every day, um, there's been a lot of research on what's called weak ties. Right? Those are people who just... Um, you know, that might be the grocer or a banker or, you know, someone you just see casually, your male person. You don't, we didn't have a lot of interaction on the weak tie front. And um, in the psychological research that I've been, I've been working on of late, weak ties are very important in people's uh, enduring sense that the world is a good place. Right? We have friends for that. But we also, when someone who's a relative stranger is kind to us, does something we don't expect, the world feels the world feels better. And, and I think uh, just to, fo- to hyper-focus, if you will, on, on that Tova Shnaim Mena Echad, I think there's something so profound about seeing a world where two people are better than one at a time when we have iPhones and iPads. And, you know, this is something Rabbi Sachs uh, spoke about very, very often and appears in his books, but in, in, in his speeches, 
the sort of concern around loneliness. And I think COVID, that isolation heightened that feeling of loneliness. And, and something tells me that although we we often perceive the existentialist as a figure alone, all those places that are punctuated by meals and, and observations about other people, I think he was probably someone who had a lot of friends and a lot of important weak ties, uh, people who are populated his life. And um, we have the great gift of emerging out of COVID and saying, you know, a Shekhiano on friends we haven't seen. And if we haven't seen them in 12 months, saying, uh, you know, saying Baruch Machai Hameitim. Uh, I recited that blessing over a friend of mine. That was one of the, my big debates in my mind. Who should I say this bracha over? Um, uh, you know, who's the first person I should say this bracha over? And uh, and it was a friend of mine. And we both sort of said it together in a car and cried. And um, I think I think COVID. Ha- I think I think Kohelet really spoke to the post-COVID world. Was speaking to the post-COVID world. How are we going to build this all back together again? We're not done. We're not done. We we haven't even, we've been trying to move forward. We haven't even processed this fully, what we all experience together. And when in our lives are we ever going to say that? How many times have humanity, everyone has suffered something. Yeah. May we never suffer it again. Amen. Amen. You, you mentioned how you know Rabbi Sachs talked about you know, the idea of loneliness and how he must have had uh, very close ties with his loose relationships. Um, you know, Ari and I were, were incredibly privileged um, to interview Rabbi Sachs um, very shortly before he passed mm. away. Um, yeah. And I just, two of the things that have like stuck in my memory from that conversation we had with him um, was, first of all, what now thinking about it is a very um, Koheletian um, uh, pasuk from uh, from Tehillim of Hafachta Misbeli Lamachali Padachta Tagi Vetazrin Simcha. Rabbi Sachs, this was it was very shortly before I passed away. It was before anyone really knew that he was um, unwell. Mm. It was in the middle of COVID, um, and he was saying that the thing that he was thinking. I think Aryeh had asked him, uh, had asked Rabbi Sachs, you know, what's it was just before Rosh Hashanah, and what was what was going through his mind for the the upcoming year, um, and you know, he had brought up brought up this idea of you know, turning um, mourning or turning sadness into joy. Um, something has always stood out, and I think is something we've sort of touched upon quite a lot um, over our conversation um, this evening. Um, but then also how he talks about ha- um, that over the course of the first lockdown, he and his wife had celebrated um, a significant wedding anniversary. They're all significant, but it was, you know, one of the, one of the round numbers. Um, and they had in their minds had planned to have a big party with all their kids and grandkids and friends. And they ended up, um, just celebrating it together in their back garden with, um, I think he said a, a bottle of Israeli champagne. Um, but I think, you know, that idea that we rely on our loose connections, but also having that, those, uh, you know, having those, those stronger ties as well, um, is something so incredibly important. Um, and I think just to wrap up our conversation, um, that, you know, your works that have, there's so many books that we're privileged to publish. Um, and then particularly Kohelet, which I think is a, it it seems from our conversation has, has been a a very emotional process for you, um, in terms of putting it together and and putting it, bringing it to the world. Um, so I think just just to say thank you for for sharing so much of yourself with us and your students and the readers uh, wherever they may be, um, it's a real privilege to be able to talk to you. Can I just can, can I just say a word of closing about Corin? Is that okay? Uh, only if it's positive. <laughs> um, yeah, as we close, I want to thank both of you. Uh, for um, for your interest and in, and in your friendship, I have to say, publishing with Cohen is is uh, is really a privilege. Um, and the relationship that I've developed with uh, with those who work there, with Ronnie, with Matthew Miller, these are relationships that are very very important uh, to me. And um, it's, it's an amazing it's an amazing team to partner with. Thank you all. It's an, an honor for us to yeah. work with you. Thank, so thank you for trusting us with you very much.
That's all we have time for this week. Thank you again to Dr. Erica Brown. Um, I found that to be another uh, wonderfully inspirational episode. Um, as they all have been. So if this is the first time you're listening or you've only listened to a couple of episodes of the current podcast, please do go back uh, and listen to the whole back catalogue. Uh, follow, like, rate, subscribe, all of those things, and make sure you share with all of your friends. You can get a copy of Dr. Brown's new book, Ecclesiastes and the Search for Meaning, uh, from karenpub.com. And you can save 10% uh, on that book and all other books uh, at www.karenpub.com using promo code podcast at checkout. Uh, if you'd like to reach out to us, uh, talk about anything you like, who you'd like to see on the podcast, uh, books uh, you think we should be working on, um, or just let us know your thoughts. You can reach us uh, via social media at Curran Publishers on all the platforms or via email podcast at currentpub.com. Um, that is all for this week. We'll be back again in a couple of weeks time with another fantastic episode of the current podcast, Al Regal Achat. Uh, until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.